Okay, wake up in the morning and I go and get the paper Gotta get the paper Every morning gotta go and get the paper And a nice cup of coffee Order one with two espresso shots and they call red eye Okay, so welcome uh, to episode 12 of the Great Underreaction podcast, a satirical sports podcast with me, Callum White, and as always, my best friend in the world, Andrew Ernesto Seaton. Andrew, I've got two questions for you. The first question is, how are you? The second question is, which university are you currently affiliated with? I'm fine. (laughs) <laughs> I'm wondering when we're going to drop that joke. Uh, officially from the University of St. Andrews, although currently visiting scholar at the University of Glasgow. So uh, wow. there you go. And it's uh, official, you know, I've got a website. So I made my own website today. www.andy-seaton.co.uk I didn't wow. like the look of andyseaton.co.uk. I had put a little dash in the middle. There you go. So it's been a good day, apart from uh, after everything after picking Felix up was awful, uh, because he was genuinely insane. He's cried oh, no. pretty much ex- for like four hours in a row. So <laughs> I feel like I feel like I've cried for four hours in a row. That's how I feel harrowed. Oh, that sounds terrible. Yeah. We went swimming, and he didn't want to get out of the pool. Then he didn't want to leave the bath, and then he didn't want to get dry. So then I did that thing. We we're in the changing rooms. And I was like, he was like, I don't want to get dry. And there's people changing in every cubicle all around us, just hearing us. Like, and I'm like, well, fine, just put your clothes on wet then. <laughs> he puts, started putting his clothes on wet. And he was like, they're wet, they're wet, they won't go. And his little pants won't go up his legs because his legs are wet. And I'm like, I'm like, you see what you get? You see what you get? See the consequences? Consequences, Felix. And then he didn't want to cycle home. And, they didn't want to, and then he didn't want to go in the door. And then he didn't want baked potato for dinner. And then he didn't want his nose to runny, be runny. And then he was crying so his nose was even runnier but he didn't want it to be blown and then oh my god just thinking about it <laughs> oh <laughs> it's a nightmare well but apart I, from that i've had a really good day can we debrief a little bit from last episode yeah sure what do you want to talk uh-huh. about okay so last episode it came up the honda jazz came up <laughs> okay my car is a honda jazz and I've been getting messages from people, messages from my co-hosts, right? Poking fun at the little Honda Jazz. Let me, let me, I didn't say it because I just need to defend myself here a little bit. So that car was left to me by my late grandma who passed away in 2014. Okay. So if you're messaging me on WhatsApp, poking fun at the fact that we drive a Honda Jazz, then you're insulting the memory of my grandma. Okay, and I love our Honda Jazz. We got it just before Felix was born, and it's been a re-dependable family car. So everybody leave off the Honda Jazz. Okay, I've said my bit. So that implies that people who are not me have also been mocking the Honda Jazz. Yeah, I've got a few. I've had a few messages. <laughs> I was the message you're referring to. I was driving into the university to pick up Sarah and the baby. And uh, I was driving along and it was like pouring rain and I knew that they were stuck in the rain and I was running a little bit late and I'm trying to get there and I was stuck behind this car which was going at genuinely 23 miles an hour in a 40 zone and I was like fucking hell this car is like I'm trying not to get road rage 
I'm like, this car is going so slow. And I could see, even though they were driving in front of me, I could see that the people driving it were like 75 to 85 years old. And uh, we came up to a set of lights and I had stopped and I was like, oh my God, it's a Honda Jazz. <laughs> <laughs> so I got my phone out and took a picture and sent it to you because not only were they driving a Honda Jazz, but they were driving about as slowly as I've ever seen someone <laughs> driving, which is all a Honda Jazz can do. Okay, well, if you're saying it's an old lady's car, it, it is an old lady's car. I got <laughs> yeah. it from an old lady who had died, okay? <laughs> but I also love that car, okay? Yeah. There's nothing wrong with a Honda Jazz. Stop mocking it. <laughs> uh, Anyway. Was there any any other debriefing that you wanted to do? No, that was really it. I just wanted to. That was it. Uh, I want um, I don't know if on the it was the last episode or the episode before, but I um, swore at Louisa. Well, I don't know if I swore at her, but I probably swore at Louisa um, because she was in charge of merch uh, for the Great Underreaction project and only sent merch to you and. She rectified this in spectacular fashion by securing me a T-shirt that's got a picture of Harry Kane's face and mouth breather in massive text on it, <laughs> as well as having a uh, great underreaction on the sleeves and hashtag GU on the sleeve. Uh, and it is one of the finest pieces of clothing I've ever... I think probably the finest piece of clothing. Um, when I opened the box... I said, that's the best present I've ever got, which instantly pissed off Sarah. So, <laughs> and I, stand, I just stood by it. I was just like, no, it's still the best present I've ever got. <laughs> the gift of life for your daughter. So, the gift of life. Yeah. Like, thank you for giving birth to my child, but have you seen this T-shirt? <laughs> that is genuinely one of the funniest things I've seen. And... There's a problem here. Guess what the problem yeah. is? You didn't get one? I got, right, this is what merch that I got from Louisa. She sent me some rubbers, which she'd written on in pen, saying <laughs> hashtag great underreaction on them. Okay? And I think that was lovely, and it was right up there with one of the best things I've received, and I still think they're lovely, but I don't have a fucking T-shirt. Okay? <laughs> Like, it's gonna get so expensive for the reason. It's gonna escalate, and she's gonna do great underaction themed Honda Jazzies. It <laughs> <laughs> cost her like two hundred pounds a go. Yeah, with GU, just the license plate, just GU. <laughs> yeah, the license plate would cost more than the car. Uh, oh no, I, I'm only joking, Louisa. A fantastic gift. That was really good. Yeah. Yeah, um, so we're hoping that they're going to be available to, for purchase from the wider public, um, but we've still not quite sorted out our cryptocurrency, um, but we're hoping to get that sorted for the next show. So I um, thought you were being serious the... for a second. I was about to tell you about uh, image rights. <laughs> um, Someone asked me if I want to like set up a Patreon, and I said, no, no, no. Because we've got we've got just like we've just lifted music that we've got no permission to use, and it's fine if you don't make any money whatsoever or use get anything out of it. 
other than satisfaction. But any monetary value, as soon as we do that, then we have to like, I don't know. I'd have to sing an intro music, an outro music. Should we go to Great Underreaction of the Week? Um, okay, so the great underreaction of the week uh, comes from, well, this is a story that I find, and I was watching the NFL, I'm a big NFL fan, and the kicker, so the guy who kicks the ball uh, for the Chicago Bears, kicked a, a game-winning field goal. So as time expired, he kicked the ball from like miles away, got it through the post, so he got three points, and he won the game, and they were all very, very, very excited. And uh, after the the match, he was doing a post-match interview with the, the woman on the field. And uh, this is what he had to say. Guys, with the hero of the game right now, Eddie Pinheiro. Eddie, all off-season long, the story in Chicago was the inability to find a clutch kicker. Yeah. Today, the story and the answer is you. Yeah, that was, like I said, I couldn't have done it without my team. Thank God that I, it was to this point and... For everybody listening, man, if, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you better start because he's real. I promise you that. <laughs> okay. Okay. A lot to deconstruct. So, and, Andrew, I pose the question to you on the great underreaction. Your reaction to a guy kicking a ball through some posts as evidence of the existence of Jesus Christ. I wasn't convinced by it. (laughs) I feel like I don't want to shit on anyone's religion. It didn't persuade me. So what we will do, neither of us are religious people, but we will say as a like disclaimer, what we're going to make fun of is not religion per se, but the idea that, some sort of sports act taking place is evidence of mm-hmm. a divine existence. I mean, uh, is that a fair, fair thing to do? We can say, like, if you're a uh, Christian, that's fine. Um, but we still don't think that this guy kicking that ball through those posts is evidence of your belief system. Well, let, me try and, let me try and get into the mindset. Okay, so I believe in God. Okay, and I know I'm a good Christian. And I do this really difficult thing and it pays off and I win the I win the game for my team and it was really difficult and really unlikely that I would manage to but I did and so I thank God that bit I'm okay sports people thank God all the time but to then point at the camera and look that like he looks at you through the camera his eyes look at you and he says if you don't believe in God you'd better think again and I mean, he, <laughs> does he think God wanted the Chicago Bears to win? That that must be it. <laughs> he yeah. thinks God wanted the Chicago. <laughs> it's part of a divine plan. The, uh, the well, Jesus Christ. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, you better start because he's real. I promise <laughs> you that. That's what he said. Um. What I liked was when I was trying to find the link to the um, 
the actual clip of him saying that, there's like a war that's going on between Christian blogs and atheist blogs. And it's just people being like <laughs> writing lengthy things about how Eddie Pinheiro made a field goal. So you better believe in Jesus. And they're like, so they've written like, sure, we passed the anniversary of 9-11 and the Bahamas were destroyed by a hurricane and refugee kids are still separated from their parents because God-loving Republicans aren't bothered enough by that to ever vote against Donald Trump. <laughs> but Eddie Pinheiro kicked a f- field goal. Checkmate, atheists. And then like the next one is like evidence that if you truly believe and you have religiosity, then uh, it will be rewarded to you through the work that you do in this era. And it's just like, <gasps> oh my God, is it possible that it's evidence of neither <laughs> position? Well, famous, you can't prove a negative, right? So, you know, there's no such thing as evidence exactly. for atheism. But the, uh, I don't know, maybe that's wrong. Maybe there is. But uh, I found a list of reasons to believe in God. And here are six. Mm-hmm. In, this is on every student. Doc, so it's a student website. And the title of the article is, Is There a God? Does God Exist? Here are stri- six straightforward reasons to believe that God is really there. Okay? Mm-hmm. Number one, the complexity of our planet points to a deliberate designer who not only created our universe but sustains it today. Okay, I'm not sure I link that to sport, but I mean that's wrong. The universe had a start, what caused it? Okay. The universe operates by uniform laws of nature. Why does it? Uh, I don't get this one. The DNA code informs programs and programs a cell's behavior. Apparently that's evidence of God. And we know God exists because he pursues us. He is constantly initiating and seeking for us to come to him. And number six, Jesus Christ is the most specific picture of God revealing himself to us. So I've just looked at what the Christians say is evidence for God, six of them. Mm -hmm. And even according to those things, I can't link it despite my best efforts to a guy kicking a ball through some posts. I can't do it. Well, I think what you need to remember is that when they wrote that, that was before he made that field goal. Oh, so this should be updated number seven. A guy. Either that or number six is replaced and Jesus Christ is now Eddie Pinheiro making a reasonably long field goal to win a game. Oh, goodness. I think this is... Maybe he was invested by Jesus Christ in that moment, but I would rather not be taken on by Jesus to make the winning field goal. I'd rather do it myself. Oh, interesting. Yeah. No, I understand that. You you want to do it... But there's a thing. If you do it yourself, God still did it because God created you. Yeah. So you can't really... You can't really worm your way out of it if you believe in god no we're we're about to just rehearse a lot of the arguments of the reformation on this podcast <laughs> it is a it's something which like doesn't come up in british sports a lot but comes up in american sports a great deal where the projection of religiosity is really important um it's one of the reasons that i first like really fell in love with aaron Rodgers is that so aaron Rodgers is a quarterback of the green bay packers um, uh, maybe th- four years ago. Um, so five years ago, the Packers lost in this uh, crazy game where the Seahawks beat them. And their quarterback is a guy called Russell Wilson, who's like 
super, super, super into into God. And after the match, he said at a church that God spoke to him moments after he uh, tossed an interception and told him why it took place. Uh <laughs> He said, the play happens and they pick the ball off. This is now one of the most famous moments in the NFL history where he like throws an interception um, and they lose the Super Bowl in the last play. Uh, and he said at a church, the play happens and they pick the ball off. And I take three steps. And on the third step, God says to me, I'm using you. I want to see how you respond. But most importantly, I want them to see how you respond. <laughs> so he so he said after they beat the the Packers in this miracle game, he said, "God is so good, man." Um, and he then he thanked God for setting it up and making the moment so rewarding and so special. And uh, so, like, then basically the next game that they played was against the Packers, and this time Aaron Rodgers thumped them. And after the match, he just said, "I think God was a Packers fan tonight." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and it's like it's pretty snarky but it started this whole thing about um players thanking god for their victories because both of the sides are full of religious people in, in american sports like they all pray before the game they pray at halftime and like it's crazy levels of religiosity so it's like why would god have an interest in a bunch of christians playing a sport against another bunch of christians well, I want to see at some point in the future, this kicker is going to have a game-winning kick, a potentially game-winning kick, and he's going to miss it. And it'd be really interesting if he says, uh, here's some evidence of God. He didn't want me to win. Because that... Yeah, he was doing it to test me. Yeah. I mean, if he does that, then at least he's being consistent. I have a feeling he might not do that. I have a feeling that God is not that interested in the outcome of, of sports games. I know. But I do pose a question to you that I think that sports are a conduit to a huge amount of the world. And that's why we've got this podcast to unravel those questions and really get into the deep things. <laughs> and that's why we need someone from the University of St. Andrews on the podcast. <laughs> so... Even if it's not this guy kicking that ball, which, by the way, is his only job, <laughs> uh, is to kick a ball through some posts. So if I did that, I'd be like, yeah, no, to be fair, that's my job. So there's a good reason I managed to do that. What things that have taken place in the sporting world would you say are evidence of a divine presence? Okay, so I struggled with this because I have a a position that there is really no conceivable evidence that I can imagine happening that would count as God existing as proving mm -hmm. God exists, which is like a classic atheist position to have that like even, but when we talked about this, we both got the same thing. <laughs> okay. The Liverpool Sunderland beach ball goal. <laughs> if I, Let's say if I put myself in the position of I'm a Sunderland fan or I'm a Liverpool fan, either fan, and I'm on the fence, maybe I'm like agnostic and maybe I've like prayed before the game and I've said, please, God, send me a sign. And 
I see the beach ball goal, I could see how that would tip someone over the edge. <laughs> I could see how so it wouldn't tip me over the edge, but someone on the fence, the beach ball goal would tip you over. I should say what it is. If you've not seen it, I'm going to put, I think we should start doing better show notes. I think we should start putting yeah, that's them, true. and I'll put a, we'll put a link in the show notes to this goal. So basically a beach ball has been thrown onto the pitch and it's just lying in the middle of the penalty area and a Sunderland the ball gets crossed into the box it gets it gets cleared out to a Sunderland player who takes a thwack at the ball and it's going straight at the keeper. The keeper is about to make a straightforward save but it hits the beach ball. <laughs> And the beach ball goes one goes to the left of the keeper, and the football goes to the right, and it's a goal. And the goal stood. Uh, the, the the referee said that, that can be a goal. I would say that is, I mean, that is crazy. Don't you think that's crazy? And I saw an article. I was googling it, and I saw an article from last year because it was the like ninth year anniversary of that goal or something. And uh, Pepe Reina, who was the goalkeeper for Liverpool at the time. Um, says is says he's still haunted by that moment. <laughs> I think what we need to remember is that um, you know when looking for the divine, usually what we want is something which cannot be explained by conventional means. So our knowledge of science and letters and numbers can put into words the or can't explain how this has managed to be, you know? So that's the whole thing about uh, how the human body is so perfect or the universe is so perfect. It must've been created. Right. And people say it's evolution, but um, I think that for all of the, the things that I've looked at and I've studied the reformation and I've, you know, done a whole bunch of history of religion. Um, I can't think of anything, which is a clearer evidence that, God does exist, then that beach ball being chucked <laughs> onto that pitch. If you're a Sunderland fan, if you're a Liverpool fan. <laughs> but I I think the the beach ball was definitely evidence of God. But when I think about something which the odds of it happening were so small and the justice and serendipity of it was so perfect that in a non-divine world it just would never have happened but it did and therefore god must be real oh can i guess i'm gonna guess yeah miracle at medina no but that's a good one that's literally called a miracle that's true that is i mean if it wasn't uh evidence of god then why is it called a miracle Exactly. Oh, I thought so. I was so sure that was what you were about to say. I'm sorry, I ruined. Okay, go go with your one. Go. No, what I was going to say was John Terry slipping in the Champions League final. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. It was at the height of him being an arsehole, and he went to take the penalty in the Champions League final in Moscow, and slipped on his arse. Oh, it's even just thinking about it now. I can, I think I can feel grace. Oh, a sense. I was of looking at a. <laughs> I was looking at a um, picture of it, and it's just like John Terry 
careering to his arse as the ball <laughs> is clearly veering wildly off shot. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, well yeah. we've got the other one. Um, I mean, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention the hand of God. That's the name that the Argentinians gave it, a very religious nation. Um, no, that's true. If we'd been alive for when that happened, I think we would have felt much more like God had come in to deny the English media the chance to wax lyrical about how great their team was. And and that to me um, is much more believable as a good, a worthy cause that God would directly intervene for that cause more than just, you know, someone's game in the NFL. Yeah, that's true. It's probably more important than a week two matchup in the NFL. Yeah, week two. <laughs> it's not even like an important game. It's just a like very early season game. Um, um, I but, have, so, so the only other thing that I had on my list, which I think is clear evidence of God, or at least divine presence of Jesus Christ, um, was, it's probably obvious, but it's, Eric Cantona drop kicking that fan. <laughs> well, that's just because it's given pleasure to so many people, right? And it's like that is, yeah. I, it I, cannot I, be explained through conventional means. <laughs> the only explanation is that God must have got involved. Because how can you explain that through rational thought and the world? I I don't think you can. I mean, we covered Eric Cantona's acceptance speech last week. That. You can't explain that either. Eric Cantona is just everything he does. He's ev- he's walking evidence of God. <laughs> Guys, if it's head. Did you have anything enough, else? I have one. Okay, so I was really yep. struggling because I don't know if it if this has come across at all, but I really don't believe in God. <laughs> like I really don't. No, <laughs> and um, I couldn't think of anything from real sport, but I did weirdly turn to Disney. Uh, have you seen the Disney cartoon version of Robin Hood? About 48 times. With the foxes, you know. With the, the foxes. Yeah. Do you remember the archery tournament? There's no way that you would watch that film 48 times and not remember the archery tournament. And in the archery tournament, the Sheriff of Nottingham has, like, he's cheating and he like trips up Robin Hood and makes his like first arrow fire up into the air and then Robin Hood like just calmly notches another arrow fires that arrow and it hits the back of the first arrow and then the first arrow hits gold bang in the middle and and snaps the sheriff of Nottingham's arrow in half and it falls to the ground and he wins a golden arrow if that happened in real life i think i might question some things that would be evidence of Jesus Christ. I, I think that that was always my favorite moment in that entire film. And I think that, that if that if anyone actually managed to do that in real life, actually, you know, they'd have to do it like 10 times in a row. No, nah, actually, even then, I would just think they were really good at archery. Like they just said they just were next level, next level good. But how would they be that good at archery if it wasn't part of God's master plan? I I I think just by being really good at archery, I don't have another explanation for you, Callum. I think that I think the most important part of that is that when uh, his arrow hits 
into the center and splits the other arrow, uh, one of the little animals who's watching it goes, he split his arrow in twine. <laughs> you remember it really clearly. I, I actually watched on YouTube to make sure that I had it had it down. Like That was actually the contents of the film. No, I remember watching that about like six or seven years ago um, when I was babysitting and and the kid like wasn't that interested in it, but I was getting really into it. And there's a scene where, shortly after that scene, where pandemonium kicks off and there's all these, is it hippos or rhinos or elephants? But they're all stacked on top of each other and they're just like running about because they're scared someone pokes an arrow in one of their bums. And I, honestly, it's one of the best things that you'll ever watch. Those Disney films, the animation, if you watch it closely, you will not have a bad time, even as an adult. It's such an enjoyable thing to watch. Well, there you go. I think that that would count. But unfortunately, that's a Disney movie and not something that so, actually happened. If the Fox version of Robin Hood from the Disney film managed to shoot his arrow and redirect it into another arrow, then you would believe that that was evidence of divine existence. It's kind of difficult here because, you know, firstly, if there really was a Fox Robin Hood, I would be, that is almost as amazing as the arrow feat. Um, And like talking foxes, cartoon foxes in real life. I mean, I can't. But I would just question my sanity at that point. I would just assume that something had gone terribly wrong in my mind and that mm. really I wasn't watching a fox shoot an arrow into another arrow to win a golden arrow tournament in 16th century England. I would assume that I was insane and in some sort of padded room. Once again, we've come back to the starting point, which was your premise that the only way to believe in God is by being insane. <laughs> No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if I'm witnessing a fox shoot an arrow into another arrow to win a golden arrow and there's hippos riding hippos, that you think you've been slipped some LSD or something, man. That's something different. I wouldn't thank God. Well, okay. Let's tie up the, the great underaction for the week then. Do sports feats provide evidence of divine existence. Andrew Seaton, yes or no? Oh, brilliant. Wait, hang on, hang on. No. <laughs> that was fun. I like doing that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's weird, the small I pleasure I get. I mean, it's so simple. It's just, I get so much pleasure out of doing that. Let's just do it again. Yeah. So soothing. I feel like I'm a fetus. <laughs> also evidence of God's existence so uh, you've got our next story of the day haven't you yeah I do and um, so last week was pretty relaxed we didn't really stray into any difficult territory and now I feel like we've already gotten in trouble with religion we've probably really gotten in trouble with religion and I'm regretting yeah. my choices now because I want to talk. My two articles, one is about racism and the other one is about transgender women in sports. So woo-hoo. let's just, <laughs> oh my God. 
don't know what I was thinking, Callum. <laughs> so which which do you want to go for first? Racism, transgender? Let's do racism. Okay. Did you see Bernardo Silver got in trouble? I did. Did you see that? Do you know what he got in trouble for? He... So... He made a reference that one of his uh, teammates is like a black character on a sweets packet in Spain. Yeah, have you have you seen the original tweet that he sent? No. Okay, you need to see it. You need to see it. So he's teammates with Benjamin Mendy. That's it. And uh, he found a photograph of Benjamin Mendy as a child, and then he tweeted it next to another photograph of a character that's like a brand of sweets in Spain. Um, and I'm just going to send it to you and we'll get your reaction live here. I'm sending it in the chat. If you okay. click that link and then scroll down on the left. Before we get into the racism thing, <laughs> it is really funny. It's a really funny tweet. So I, it's only funny because if you know that Bernardo Silva is really good friends with Benjamin Mendy, okay, they're like genuine friends. And Benjamin Mendy replied to this tweet, uh, which I'll describe in a second. He replied to this tweet with the like crying laughing emoji. Right, so he found it funny. Um, yeah. So it's a picture of Benjamin Mendy as a child. Benjamin Mendy's black, and then there is this incredibly racist piece of branding for these sweets called conguitos, which are chocolate sweets. And there's this like little chocolate man, um, but he's got the most ludicrous like pot belly and ginormous red lips, and it's just yeah. if you isolate just Congito's the company, then they have definitely got racist packaging on their products. Yeah. I don't think there's any way around it. But uh, I actually have to say, kick it out, the organization that fights um, against racism in, in um, football, they criticized Benjamin Men- uh, Bernardo Silva and he deleted the tweet straight away. And... Um, he then tweeted, he should have he shouldn't have done this, but Bernardo Silva said, you can't even joke with a friend these days, you guys. And then I think he deleted that tweet as well. So um, there's something there's something difficult about this because I feel like there's two ways of reading the tweet. And one way is it's a racist tweet. And the other way is that it's two friends and one friend has noticed something that he thinks is funny, and it genuinely, if you if you look at this this picture, it's funny. I mean, it's, it is a funny tweet, um, and he's just ribbing his friend. And if this happened yeah. on the if this happened on the training ground, it would not be an issue. But because they're doing it in like a public forum, that's where the problem has become, has has started. So, so what's your what's your stance then? Is your stance that it's a a problem or that it's it's not a problem? I mean, I think the the first thing that you can definitely criticise Bernardo Silva in all instances is it's a bit stupid 
<laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's clearly going to create a problem. Like anyone who's done any sort of social media training in Man City would be like, "Oh my God, Bernardo!" <laughs> I know. Come it, on, it is, is like it is. It is monumentally stupid, and I there is no way you can look at the Chinguitos branding and say that it's anything other than racist. Okay, it's so obviously but, racist, <laughs> but. Is it racist to say as a joke that your mate looks like this ridiculous cartoon figure? And and I mean it's so bad. It's got these huge red lips. It's so bad. <laughs> but I don't I'm I don't know if it's racist to say your friend as a joke looks like this cat this figure. And the reason I say that is I saw once a TED Talk. Yes, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that sentence. I saw a TED Talk, and it was by a lesbian political broadcaster called Sally Cohn, and she was arguing for replacing the concept of political correctness with emotional correctness. And her whole point was, I still remember this, like years later, that she's her friends. If they called her a big dyke in a really jokey way, she doesn't mind because she hears the emotional content behind the words. And mm. I feel like here, Bernardo Silva, he's done something stupid, but he's not racist. And the emotion, like the guy, the supposed target of the racism laughed and is friends with him. They're friends. So at a certain point, when does that trump like other things? Um, I'm, I'm not in general a big fan of of you know like if there are idiots out there who will take the racist interpretation of this tweet and laugh at it in a racist mean way i don't think it i'm, I'm i try to put how am i supposed to put this i don't think it's bernardo silva's responsibility if people other than him are twats so I think what you would say is because the the argument that I think kick it eye and people who would say this is unacceptable under any circumstances and Mendy's reaction to it has got nothing to do with it would say he has a platform I don't know how many followers he'll have but hundreds of thousands up to millions um, and even if you know Mendy thinks it's fine and they're friends and this is sort of like a private joke that's been acted out publicly. What it does is validate racism to potentially millions of people, and that nuance will be lost in a lot of people. So it's much better from a sort of like public role model stance to just adopt a zero tolerance, don't be racist standpoint. But I think what you're saying is that you don't think whether or not he tweets that, it's not like someone sitting looking at their phone. And they're like, oh, Bernardo Silva's been a bit racist. I'll go be racist too. Was that right? Yeah, but even I guess I just generally this is my this is my instinct in a lot of things, and this is probably why Helen calls me right wing, even though I'm not right wing. Is That's that funny? I get I, called right wing in our house too. Do you? And I I get told called right wing because I definitely am. I are on the side of. You know, I don't like this kind of view that there's this like swirling mass of competing ideas. And if you just like say something that could possibly be in the worst possible interpretation seen 
as promoting one of these bad ideas, then that's your fault, even if it requires someone else to do a lot of the legwork to make it that way. So mm. uh, in general, I, I'm not a massive fan of having to of having to police your speech so much that there's no possible way in which it could ever be used to like further the cause of some evil thing. I, I just feel like it's too difficult to do that. And there's too many perspectives and interpretations you can take. And I take your point here that Twitter, not known for being good at getting the context across, you know, yeah. it, it is, it is, and even just on that basis alone, I do think it was a mistake to do it. I do think that he shouldn't have done it. But at the same time, I don't think it's such a huge deal. Like, such a huge deal. It's, I, I really don't think anyone has been made more racist than they already were by reading that tweet. Mm. I mean, we've often talked about, like, if someone hacked into our WhatsApp conversations the pictures that they could paint of us would be, I mean, we're not sending racist things to each other, but we'll definitely say things which in the context of our friendship make sense because you know what the person's mind is and you know what their stance is and like how they vote and what their actions are with people and what is clearly a well-established joke. But if you just take things like that out of context, then all of a sudden people can be represented in quite nasty ways, which are 100% not their true form. Mm. In this instance, you know, like, just keep that in your WhatsApp chat with the Man City lads. Don't put it on Twitter when you've got a blue check mark. Yeah, I think there's no circumstance where this is not idiotic. I agree. I agree. I, I really think that's what I, I meant when I said if this was on a tra- training ground, it would never be a thing. It's because it's yeah. public. And and I kind of wish it wasn't that way. And I, I kind of think that there's a tendency to towards interpreting what people say always as revealing something terrible about that person, to always put the worst possible spin on it because outrage kind of feels good outrage always gets other people liking your tweets and stuff like that and outrage ultimately is like a big driver of traffic on the internet and mm. i think it, i think this is not a, this is not only about racism and sports i think this is just general trend across the internet when you know if, if someone says if a politician says something that there, there's even the slightest way of spinning it that it's a terrible thing to have said then it will get spun that way um, so that, I, that's why I, I do also feel sorry for Bernardo Silva, even though he's an idiot. I do think as well, there is an element here of, there's a, it's a wider conversation, but we sort of hold footballers, all sports people, but particularly footballers, to this quite high standard. And in Bernardo Silva, we've got a guy who, almost certainly comes from a fairly underprivileged background in Spain, has played football to the detriment of all other facets of his life since he was, what, 12, 13? Hmm. You know, has has played football 
as a professional essentially since he was 16. And we don't expect people who have that sort of life path in any other way, you know, whether or not they left school to be a mechanic or to, um, you know, work on a construction site. We don't expect them to harbour particular sensitivity about things which can be quite complicated subjects sometimes. And yet when footballers get it wrong, we're like, oh my God, you need to understand your place in this. And they get social media training and they, you know, they, they definitely have an awareness of the importance of their platform more, I think, than, you know, Gaz24498 would have when he tweets exactly the same thing to his 11 followers. So it's not an apples to apples comparison, but, you know, these guys are not brain boxes. And I've played in, I've played more team sports and competitive sports than you have. And, you know, as a well-educated person who's played, well, you know, I played for a team from the council estate in Aberdeen and the conversation, but even, you know, playing for the Oxford College cricket team, locker room conversations can be like the, the interaction or the banter can take place at a kind of, not unpleasant, but weird level sometimes, you know? Yeah, yeah, I, I understand that. And I mean, neither of us is saying that being... I'm trying, I'm trying to think, like, I, I, the, on the one hand, I can see people's annoyance with ben, with Bernardo Silva. And they're saying, you're not, you're not helping, you're not helping. But on the other hand, I can see the other viewpoint, like, where is the generosity... You know, where's the generosity of perspective? You know, like to say, Bernardo Silva, you know, I'm going to choose to see you as, I'm not going to, I'm not going to instantly go to the worst possible interpretation of what you've done. And it's it's not just on Bernardo Silva to, to be like a good boy in public and never, ever say anything that could possibly be interpreted in a bad way. And, I mean, that's asking a lot of someone and all we need to ask of the other people, the people who are outraged is a little bit of generosity and spirit to believe that other people who say things, maybe they're not like evil to their core and they've just said something that has a multiple different interpretations. And one of them, one of them, yeah, it could be the worst one that you're imagining, but that's not always the way that it actually was intended. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think Sorry, go on. The the thing for me is whether or not we have the right level of scope for walking things back at the moment. I think once the like Bernardo Silva's racist look at this racist thing he did, he's a racist. Once that's left the the station at the moment or is out of the gate, I don't think the scope for any sort of nuanced debate or for him to say yeah, sorry, that was a stupid joke. Uh, he thought it was funny. Actually, it turns out that we'd already had a chat about this, and what happened is I just took this like private thing between us and made it too public. And mm-hmm. you know, I'm sorry, I won't do that again. And everyone can sort of go, 
yeah, you know, I could see situations in my life where that could have happened to me. Fair enough, Bernardo. Like you've sorted yourself out. <laughs> yeah, that that would never we'll, happen. We'll, we'll just move on. You, that doesn't happen now, and that's the problem I've got. With not it. even that. It's not that that they would say we don't accept your apology. It's that they would that apology would then be more words to pick over, and more ways in which to yeah. reveal his genuine, hidden, implicit, or whatever you want to call it, racism. Um, so you're right. Mm. That's a good point. There's there's there are online there are some offences for which there is no forgiveness. It's just, that's just the way it is. And that's you forever in some circles of the internet. Um, so, yeah, I think we've, well, we've strayed really far from uh, amusing podcast <laughs> material. <laughs> I mean, it's your fault. I know it's my fault. I mean, but, I mean, really look at that. Look at the tweet. It is funny. <laughs> like, there's no other way to put it. I really find um, it funny. Uh, <laughs> well, Andrew, Andrew Seaton is a confirmed racist. I think we've known this since episode four when you started taking shots at Serena Williams. But yeah. We got can we have like a, just wait until we get to like episode hundred. <laughs> episode hundred is just gonna be me for like twenty minutes just pounding you on things that you've done for the last like ninety-nine episodes. I'll be like calling back to all of these different jokes and then we'll be like, and now the podcast can start. <laughs> we'll have to have an agreement between us that if either of us ever has a a job which has some level of public scrutiny that we will delete this podcast from the internet. It shall. That's true. It's, it's, I mean, I work for the civil service, so <laughs> <laughs> could be a problem. <laughs> it could be a problem. All right, let's move on. Let's move on to lighter topics. Should we do something? Yeah, something lighter. And yes, what have you got? For I've us? got. I've got the International Olympic Committee kicking the can down the road on transgender women competing in the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. So, oh, God, why did I... Why were these the two? God, I must hate myself. All right, let's get into the weeds. Right, so, um, firstly, can you believe it's almost four years since the Rio Olympics? That's crazy. Yep. That doesn't feel like that should happen. Feels like ages ago to me. Uh, you've yeah, maybe. You've, yeah. Actually, we've both. Been- I, all I remember thinking with the Rio Olympics was like, "Don't give a shit." Not as good as London. I remember watching Andy Murray Del Potro. Oh yeah, that was good. That was really but good. again, wasn't as good as Andy Murray Federer. No, it wasn't. London was really good. They were really good Olympics. Anyway, London was incredible. Right. So the basically the International Olympic Committee, they were due to introduce stricter guidelines on transgender women competing in um, in the women only events in 2020 Olympics. But they failed to do so because they couldn't agree. So the current guidelines that they were put in place in November 2015 and they state that transgender women can compete in um, women events. So these are men who have transitioned and they've become women and they can compete even without the removal of their um, their testes as long as they have less than 10 nanomoles per litre of testosterone. 
And if you remember when we talked about Castor Semenya, that's a level as well for people with androgenism. So it's it's the same. Is that the right word? If I just said it, made up a word, androgenism, is that a word? Well, oh, I've probably put myself. I I think and androgyny is a androgyny. Word, so. Yeah. So it's the same. It's basically the same cutoff. If you even if you you were biologically a man, um, rather than someone we might describe as intersex. Um, Actually, right. incidentally, did you know I was looking in, when I was researching this article, I uh, found a, um, an academic article about the 10 nanomoles per litre level. And I didn't realize this, but if you are, there are three different evaluation levels if you are, um, before you get tested for your testosterone levels. And the first one is a physical exam. And it's called the hirsutism evaluation or something like that. And do you know what hirsutism means, Callum? Hirsutism? Yeah. I have to confess, I don't know what hirsutism means. It basically means. means hairy, like you're a woman, but you're very hairy. Um, so I've just sent you a link there on the Zenka. So is that like being a bearded woman? Yes, basically. And if you scroll down to uh, figure two. Let's see. (laughs) So this is level one. Is is figure two the one with all the pictures? Yes. So let me describe this for the listeners. So basically there are different rows and each row is a different part of the body. One is the upper lip, one is the chin, one is the chest, one is the upper abdomen, the lower abdomen, uh, the arms and the thighs. <laughs> and then in very crude drawings, like pencil drawings, there's these parts of the body with increasing levels of hair on them. <laughs> and you score them from one to four for hairiness. So you just you, mm. you make the athlete strip down and then you look at all these different parts of the body And you give them a score of one to four based on what these little pictures look like. And then at the end, if your score is too high, then they say, hmm, something funny going on here. If you're a very hairy woman, then you move on to get your blood, get some blood tests and some urine tests. And then if they show something, you get level, you get like even more intensive tests after that. So that blew my mind. That level one is you just check how hairy someone is. Isn't well, I've got to say, I'm looking at the pictures, and not to pry, not to brag, but I do have a pair of testes, and I'm not sure. So there's seven categories, and they're all ranked out of four. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I would score a full twenty-eight, and I'm pretty sure that you wouldn't. No, well, I've got a beard. And I've got you've got a beard, but that's only yeah, w- the first two. The first one is upper lip, and then there's chin. Okay, so but then you've got like a little sort of naked chest. So you're sort of two. No, no, I'm a th- I'm a three. Your upper abdomen's. I'm a three. But my upper abdomen oh, is, is my upper abdomen is like on a good day, like my hair levels in my chest don't fluctuate. I have to put this. I have to put this this article in the show notes so everyone can play can explore themselves. <laughs> For her suitism, yeah, um, yeah. Do write in and let us know your her suitism <laughs> score. Anyway, that was just a, a little aside. When I saw that picture, I couldn't believe it. Anyway, so 
I want to know what you're classifying your upper abdomen as. Are you a one or a two, <laughs> a two or a three? I think I'm a because you're not. I'm not. A, so two is it, for the listeners at home. Uh, two is just like uh, a little treasure trail in like a straight line, like right up your abdomen. You're not supposed to call it a treasure trail, are you? And uh, number three is there's a bit of hair around the main treasure trail, and that's what I've got. Just so you're a sort of a two, then a three there, aren't yeah, you? Yeah. So for chest and upper abdomen, I'm three, I think. And then arms, I don't have hairy biceps, so I'm not sure exactly what's going on there. <laughs> yeah, me neither. And for for, for, <laughs> for thighs, I don't have like crazy. I mean, I've got quite hairy legs and arms, and I'm still not scoring fours on those. So it, it, imagine if you came out with a twenty. Like you've got to be basically a gorilla it, to score. It's hard to describe. <laughs> it's hard to describe how crude these pictures are. Like they're so crude, it's <laughs> really that. difficult to use clinically. I would imagine. Okay, I just feel like <laughs> they would be really difficult to use, especially since they're not even consistent with each other. Like, look, look, the <laughs> chest. There's some boobies, and then when it's showing the arms, lady, she's got no boobies. That's true. I mean, I'm, you're going to look more male if you just put some pecs on a on a female body and no boobs. Anyway, right. I probably shouldn't have even said that. I'm going to get flat-chested Twitter going on at me. Yeah, you've just body-shamed oh. flat-chested women. Oh. Um, well, do write in and let us know your <laughs> her superhero score. Uh, I reckon, <laughs> I mean, I'm mine falls down quite a lot because I've got such terrible facial hair that I'm going to be struggling. I think I'm probably making a campaign to get onto stage two of testing. But <laughs> let's presume that I do manage to pass the hirsutism score yeah. based purely on my hairy chest. What happens then, Andrew? Um, then you get blood and, and urine samples and they test for markers of having high male hormones. And then if you, if you are, if they come up back high as well, then you get this, like the official like testosterone, you can't be over 10 nanomoles per liter testosterone test. So that's how it works. So the 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 reason so it's ten nanomoles per liter. The reason that those guidelines were controversial is because um, if you were born um, women, if you were born women, <laughs> if you were born female, <laughs> your testosterone levels they they average they range between zero point one two and one point seven nine nanomoles per liter. So you one point seven nine is the upper end and of what um, typical female testosterone levels would be and you're saying that men can compete if they're 10 if they've got less than 10 animals so you've got almost you've got more than five times the upper end of what women would have um mm. and men men's testosterone levels are typically between 7.7 .7 and, and 29.4 animals which is way more there's way more variety there isn't there that's quite astonishing so um, that's the argument. Um, some scientists were saying that f a level of five would be a nice compromise because that's less than men, but still more than most women. And that would be like in between the two groups. Like that would be in between the bell curve. You know, if you imagine two bell curves, there's one for women, there's one for men. They don't overlap and they, you pick a value in between, right? Um, mm. Others disagreed with that. Because they've, there's been research that has shown that even if you 
do testosterone suppression in transgender women, it actually has little effect in reducing muscle strength. So we'll put in the show notes. It will be good in the show notes this year, this um, episode. I'll put the link to the articles I'm, I'm talking about here. Um, so I, even after a year of low testosterone levels, you don't appear to lose muscle strength. And there appears to just be some physical advantage of having gone through male puberty that's maintained even after you transition and undergo hormone therapy. So they're saying, mm. look, even if you do, if you do get it down to five, it's still not fair. So, um, and when we when we talked about Castor Semenya, do you remember we we criticised the kind of hyper focus on testosterone, and it's kind of like a theme mm. in our podcast to do that. And this actually, in a weird way, backs it up. This this research is saying, like, you know, the testosterone is just this number; it's not the whole story. Um, so, I'm going to say one more thing, and I'm going to then I'm going to ask you for your thoughts, Callum. Um, the yeah. counter argument in this article comes from a transgender academic, someone described as a transgender academic. It's not clear whether they are an academic of transgender issues or whether this person is transgender. It's not clear. But um, they argue, and then this is a quote, uh, transgender women after hormone therapy are taller, bigger, and stronger on average than cisgendered women. But that does not necessarily make it unfair. In high levels of sport, transgender women are substantially underrepresented. And that indicates that whatever physical advantages transgender women have, and they certainly exist, they are not nearly as large as the sociological disadvantages. So that is a transgender academic who is clearly arguing that, that um, transgender women should be allowed to compete, but granting that there are physical differences and physical what she describes as physical advantages that trans transgender women have and they certainly exist she says so there you go i mean it's a bit of a bit of a mess this uh what are your thoughts callum can you ask a more targeted question <laughs> i can what do you think about this this point at the end here this admit, admitting that there are, not admitting, it sounds like you've been denying it, but acknowledging that there are physical differences between trans, physical advantages that transgender women will have over um, cisgender women, um, but yeah. saying that they're not nearly as large as the sociological disadvantages. And the evidence for that is that they're, that transgender women are un, unrep, underrepresented in sport. Does that I mean, persuade you? Transgender women are underrepresented in literally everything. They're a very small percentage of society. I don't know whether or not that's a convincing argument. I feel quite... This is you know, one of those things where... Because we both live with women who are more left-wing than we are. And I would say I used to be more left-wing than I am and have sort of like watched a whole bunch of people going down a path that I often feel slightly unsure about. And this is one of the issues where I know quite a lot of people who are much more in tune with the queer LGBTQ plus scene who I know what their position on this would be. And their position would be the transgender women are women and they should be able to compete. And 
my instinctual reaction is that transgender women were born male and that gives them physical advantages and that if they then use those physical advantages to compete in a sport professionally, then it's not fair. And I don't know whether or not the sociological underrepresentation is a convincing argument for me. I think that when you're talking about elite sport, so much of it comes down to physicality. And if you've got completely different muscle formation and clearly defined advantages towards one set, then I find it difficult to overcome that to say transgender women are women. And, you know, cause I'm happy to adopt the position transgender women are women. Mm-hmm. It's literally only can they compete professionally that I have a query about. Yeah. I, I'm with you on not being persuaded by this argument of sociological disadvantages and and i get why we might lean that way um because if we have a minority group that faces so many disadvantages bigotry exclusion from society and they're underrepresented in some sphere of society then it feels we really want to do something about that and that's why and i totally understand someone who who really agrees with this position but appealing to sociological disadvantages seems really weird to me and and that's because there are all sorts of ways in which people can be sociologically disadvantaged so i i mean it, it seems obvious to me that we wouldn't let for example a, a very very poor man a man who grew up in deprivation who was malnourished as a child and thus had sociological disadvantages, we wouldn't let them compete as a woman. And it would seem Mm. odd to do that. Someone who was from a deprived background with PTSD who can't leave the house and so therefore is not as fit as other people. I mean, I I wouldn't say they should compete as a woman either. It just seems like a no-goer to me. And and for some on some level, the reason we have sex categories in sport is because of a difference in the physical abilities of men and women. And we this is clashing with this whole other movement, which is that transgender women are women and should be seen as women and have all the rights and privileges that women have, and they shouldn't be prejudiced against them. So we've got competing norms that don't they seem I don't know how we get through this, to be honest. I mean, do you think, I, I, I remember going back to Castro Semenya thing, in that we were saying that we thought the ruling was was bullshit, but my, the reason I thought it was bullshit was because I didn't like using testosterone seemed as a, a weird thing to do. It seemed like too crude a measure. Mm. And it also felt like it was the Castro Semenya rule, right? Because it was like, tar- it felt targeted at Castro Semenya, right? It felt like, it mm. was the Castor Semenya distances in running <laughs> that were targeted. Um, and that was my issue there. But they did not resolve, and they still haven't resolved there, um, or in this situation, 
the fundamental problem of phys- the difference in physical abilities of men and women and how transgender women fit into that. I still, it's still, I don't see a path forward. Yeah, I think the the difference in Castor Semenya was that there's a whole sort of underlying, I think probably racial discussion about how they just didn't like Castor Semenya's mm. mannishness. It's not the same as Castor Semenya being a man who now wants to compete with the physical body mm. as a mm. woman. Right, that's a, it's a it is a it is a different thing. Um, I do think that professional athletes exist in a sort of marginalia, and that's why they have such strict doping regulations. Mm. Um, because there is the perception that by taking some substance or having some stimulant or where, you know, because the things that they're testing for aren't just like steroids that will make them massive turbo athletes. The things they're testing for are small things because there is the belief that that 1% would be the difference between coming seventh and winning because elite athletes really are at that kind of level of you're starting to push your body to the very limit of what it's capable of mm-hmm. doing. And, you know, there's there's this there's quite a lot of conversation about, you know, at what point are you just not going to be able to run faster? At what point are we just not going to be able to do any better than that? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and and that was the conversation about the four minute mile. And now I think that there is a conversation. I can't remember what the distance and the time is, but there's something about one of the middle distances, like, is it physically impossible for us to get below this time? And you really are talking about people who now, especially now with professional training and science and nutrition, you know, in the last 30 years, are now really at the boundaries of what the human body can achieve. And we know the boundaries of what the human body can achieve with professional training and strength and conditioning and nutrition is significantly different for men and women. And so, you know, I think that if you have, you know, sprinting or distance running or triple jump or um, weightlifting, then my position on this is more clarified. Where I become a little bit more unsure um, are any sport in which physicality is not the primary denominator of skill. So, you know, you can be the most impressive physical athlete on the field to play a game of football, but it doesn't mean you're the best footballer on the field. So have you thought about whether or not you would be happy with transgender women playing in women's soccer matches um i don't i i don't see that as i don't see that as being all that different from athletics to be honest with you no, yeah really. i mean if you put if you put a faster player a faster man alongside a slow man 
a fast, strong, fit man against alongside a weak, slow footballer. You know that that your physicality gives you an advantage. That your skill, that your you, there is also skill. But the what? Maybe put it like your your physicality allows you to realize your skill to a level that could not possibly be matched mm. by. I mean, I just can't. You can't. You can't run as fast. Football's about running. That's just one thing, right? I mean, have you noticed this watching women's football? That it, it looks very, very similar, except that the speed at which they run is 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 less. That's noticeable. Their quality with the ball is is mm. insanely good, and they're amazingly talented. But the speed at which they run is is smaller, and then also shots go in that wouldn't go in if a male keeper was there. So because women are typically yeah. smaller, and they're not jumping as high as the professional men. So well, and their leap is less explosive. less explosive. So and and just to be clear here. They're all stronger, fitter, and can jump better than me. So I'm not slagging off women keepers, but yeah. you can just notice that there's a difference. Um, so even in, in football, I'm, I'm not. I mean, I thought you were going to say. I thought you were right. Well, I mean, sorry, I, of... I thought you were going to say something like archery, or darts, or I don't know, snooker. Well, so that's the, that's the more extreme form of the argument is. There's no, as far as I can tell, there's no strong reason for women and men not to be able to compete in snooker or non-physically grinded games. And I think snooker, they've said that if a woman can qualify, then she can play in the world championships. And I think there's one woman who's made it into the qualifying rounds. Mm. But for whatever reason, there's just... And there's a, you know, so that becomes social... Right, and your point about the football is like, well, partly that's a physical ability of women. Partly, it's also chronic underinvestment in the grassroots of the game, all the way through to the professional levels. And you know, if you're investing in your team at the same sort of level as Scunthorpe United are investing in their team, then how can you expect the product to compete with Manchester? Yeah, City? that's a fair point. And I, you know, I do think that there is part of that argument. I think you're right, but you know, some of the, not all of the best footballers on the pitch are the fastest, um, strongest players, no, right? Sayed Kalasinac is not the best player on Arsenal's team, even if he is. Maybe the strongest. I could see. You know, maybe there was I could see in, um, an amazing pass over the ball in midfield. You know who's got good close control. You know, I, 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 it's easy for me to imagine a woman who's good enough to play in a man's team in that position. I'm not saying that. Uh, yeah, I'm not. Mm, I, that's I, not I know, the question. I know, the question, question is question. whether or not a transgender woman, the, whether or not a transgender woman can play in a women's team and not have, uh, just like unambiguously unfair physical advantage if i if i was a woman and i was defending against like a six foot four transgender woman who just had the build of a man and they jumped higher than me and headed a goal in 
I would maybe feel a bit hard done by. I can understand that. Mm. I think they would say that six foot four transgender women are even rarer than transgender women. <laughs> yeah, I, I was deliberately painting like the, the worst if, picture. If I say, you know, but I know, but you know, you've got to say that it's more realistic that they're going to be five foot eleven, and um, yeah. if a six foot four women play because the French team had this like six foot seven defender or something and at corner she could just head the ball mm. in and like the other defenders couldn't get anywhere near her and she was the best player by miles I've just, I mean the reason I bring it up because you know you can reduce it right down to sort of what we regard as non-physical sports like snooker mm. um, it's just to say I think that it's like at the athletics level of the the game where what we do is we take one specific physical trait and we push it and push it and push it into sort of like can you run can you run fast how fast can you run 100 mm. meters that's the point at which it's most yeah. emphasized and that's the point at which i have the most problem with it i think if you wanted transgender women to compete in women's sport i could see the case being made for it where you know like a transgender woman playing in the women's cricket team you know i could go and play in the women's cricket team i don't know whether or not i would be any better than a lot of women who would go into it because so much of the game is about hand-eye coordination and skill and technique beyond like physical strength right mm. i was one of the strongest people in the cricket team i played in i was also the worst player in mm. that team well, here's another way of here's another way for maybe explaining my intuition here. I played for Lowport Primary School Football Club, or whatever it was called. <laughs> I can't remember. Anyway, I played for in primary school. I remember we were playing St Johnston, which is the Roman Catholic primary school, and it's a very small school and. Now, as an adult, I know that they probably were short on players and they just had to find some. But they found this kid who was, like, obviously three years older than everyone else. And he just dribbled around everyone. And he was faster, stronger, and he just had the ball all the time. He had the ball. He could just dribble past people and shoot at will. And I've got to say, it felt unfair. It just felt unfair. Yeah. And I and I, and I could empathize with a cisgendered woman feeling the same way. I can empathize with that. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know what, the, what I'm saying. I don't so know, do the, solution. The, I don't know the solution. I, I really, I feel like I'm torn between, I don't want the cisgender woman to feel like they've got, they're competing in a rigged game where they don't have a chance or, and I don't want, transgender women to feel excluded because they already have such a hard time in society feeling excluded so it's like yeah. i really don't know how to mm. reconcile the two you know and mm. and some people just say well you know who cares what the cisgender women feel and other people say like look it's just playing common sense blah 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 it should be this way or that way and you know when they say could common sense they mean the common sense that it, things shouldn't change and transgender women shouldn't be able to play 
Um, and I, I really, I, I don't fall one way or the other very strongly. I think it's just a mess. Mm. I do think that, you know, with the, the trans debate, which has really exploded in the last 10 years, there is part of me that thinks it is always women who are being asked to give up their spaces and it's always women who are being asked to accept. It's not a debate going in the other direction because, you know, women are more than welcome to transition to, to men and it doesn't affect our sports really. You know, if they transition to being a man and are suddenly good enough to compete in men's sports, I think we would all just be like, good on you, well done. <laughs> it's it's unlikely, but if you can if you can do it then good luck. Like best of luck to you. So, you know, there's there's a little bit of that like it's so weighted one side and coming with that is the sort of, you know, a lot of women's sport has been really deeply neglected. You've been trying to, you know, the major sports in this country, which are, from a team sport perspective, are football, cricket, rugby. They've all, in the last 10 years, have been trying desperately to regrow, regrow support for a domestic women's version of the game, which is dominated by the men's version, with quite a lot of success. And now it's their sport, which is has the the potential to be dealing with this as an issue, not the men's competition. And there's just a little bit of me that's like, this is just shit for women that they have mm. to deal with that. I don't know what my stance is. I just feel the same as you. I just feel mm. conflicted because on the one hand, I think, this is clearly a complicated thing. I can't conceive that someone would want to transition and go through that and the unquestioned social stigma in order to benefit their athletic career. No. And on the other hand, I think this seems intuitively to me to quite clearly give them a benefit. And if what they've decided is that the most important thing is that they are a woman, they've always felt like a woman and they want to change their physical self to reflect their true being, then maybe the sacrifice for that is giving up the ability to compete in professional sports. And for so many of society, competing in professional sports wasn't an option because our physical selves weren't capable of doing that anyway mm. right like i could have desperately wanted to compete professionally at sport i would not have been able to do it my physical talents do not exist for me to be able to do that so that's a gift that's mm. that's a, a dream that lots of us give up anyway maybe that's just the line that we draw as we say you just can't do this professionally you can't compete at an international level in women's sport I'm really sorry that's the case. Like maybe if you had been born a woman, you wouldn't have been good enough to do it anyway. I mean, that just, that when you say that, it just sounds so harsh. 
You know, it just sounds like we, we would never Does like it? we. It sounds wrong because you would never say that about another job. You would never say that about another group, about another oppressed group, right? You would never say, you know, you you just wouldn't say to, <laughs> oh, you're Jewish, oh, you can't do this job. Sorry, you know, you converted to Judaism. Sorry, pal, you just this is you. You're out. You can't do this, you know. Unless it's like the the pig eating championship, I think that they would feel pretty gutted. You know, I I don't. I understand it at the same time. This is what I mean. Like it, it feels like what's the word? There's two competing things here that are just they don't they don't go. They're in conflict, and there doesn't seem to be a higher principle by which we can resolve the situation. You know, it doesn't seem to be mm-hmm. clear a clear way to say. You know, this is the adjudicating thing. You know, this is the principled way of managing this situation. It doesn't seem like there's a way of doing that. Like we just run up against two competing um, values that we hold as a society that are incommensurable with each other. You know? Mm. Um, So I'm really interested to see how this all develops. And I don't foresee on the horizon a, a, a solution that will satisfy people um but i will we'll certainly keep an eye on it we'll probably talk about this again it's very difficult i think one of the things that's interesting though and you know really brings into sharp focus the relevance of the great underreaction podcast is the way that sports actually are used for society to try and figure out itself. And this is an example of something that most people, you know, we're two intelligent people. You're at the University of St. Andrews and we're thinking about this and don't know exactly what our position is. We know it's really, really complicated. And sport is having to try and make these value judgments, make these decisions before the rest of society has even figured out what's going on with a lot of this because it's very new. There's quite a lot of, I think, quite deep conflict within people about this, even if they're not willing to admit it publicly. And there's good reasons for not admitting it publicly, but this is really complicated. And then there's a bunch of people who are having to make these decisions because sport becomes the... um paradigm of our society it becomes this like model through which Mm. we measure things through which we see Mm. ourselves and actually everyone who says sports really stupid i really think fails to to note the importance it, it plays in society with these sorts of things it was the same for race it was the same you know in the munich olympics sport really matters for society to figure out what it thinks about things and about itself. I, I think there's something there's something to that. And I think that one of the things, one of the common the one of the common annoyances I think I've had on this podcast is being when people take sport and they take something complicated and they act as though it's simple and they use it in in arguments that are bigger than sport and i think that i don't actually surprisingly i haven't seen many people treating this as though it's simple one way or the other 
You know, I've seen some people be it a bit, you know, Martina Navratilova has said she's very firmly in the camp of transgender women shouldn't compete. So I've seen some people portray Martina Navratilova as though she's the Antichrist. Okay. And it's a bit, I, it tend, I tend to get annoyed when people do this with complicated things and then they use them as part of the pieces on the board in our wider political struggle that they are, they have an ideology and they're pushing it. Um, but in this, in this case here, it just is so complicated. This one seems to have avoided the worst of the internet. I mean, we were talking earlier about generosity in, in, um, in interpreting what people say. And I think they're in, in this debate, it's one of the most sane ones I've seen. I really, but maybe that's just because I've not seen it because uh, the Castor Semenya one I thought was absolutely insane. But the transgender one seems to, I don't know why, it seems to be different, a different flavor in what I've seen on the internet. I don't know if that's the same for you. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that uh, people, are, I think, are scared or at least are aware that it's like touching a complex issue with a barge pole. And no matter what you say, you can get quite clearly represented as being a, a TERF, which is a trans-exclusionary radical feminist. Or you can get, you know, you can your words can get twisted pretty quickly here by just saying it's complicated. Um, but, you know... It seems that on the Great Underreaction podcast, we, for some reason, don't shy away from the big issues. No, we don't. Can we? Shall we move on to the trope of the week? Let's do it. Maybe, maybe we should shy this, away from this the week. Big the trope of the week is about immigration in Italy. <laughs> okay, Calm, lead on. <laughs> Um, no, this trip, this week's trip of the week. Okay, we'll do it quite quickly because it's been a lengthy episode. Um, but I would suggest that if you think the episode is too long, just listen to it in two parts. <laughs> um, it's podcast. Yeah. You just pause it. Just come back to yeah. it whenever you want. Just you don't. It's not a film. You don't have to sit down and listen to it. Um, so this. Uh, Trope of the week. This week's trope of the week, even though it's not a weekly podcast. This episode's trope of the week is um, the FIFA awards, and so it's sort of in general team of the year, but in particular the raft of articles which accompany any team of the year, which are team of the year snubs and people's righteous indignation about how player X, who they believe should be included, was not included. So the most common, uh, well, the most prominent one of these um, was after the um, team of the year was announced, um, Liverpool's Alexander-Arnold and Andy Robertson won't, weren't included. And this included a raft of some of England's pundits to tweet out that they thought this was an absolute shambles and um, what's the guy with the bald head? Danny Mills. He went on um, Talk how Sport he... and like Sorry went to interrupt off you, Callum, but can we just have a quick aside where we ponder how Danny Mills got a job as a pundit? Because he's like 
He's like he's made. Well, he's like a like an ogre, like a like a do 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 do. I can't speak properly, man. It's really weird. Even for a footballer, he is ineloquent. I'm sorry. I've just gone off on one there. I don't know why. <laughs> I'm just every time no, he, I agree, he, oh, he does. I, get, I genuinely get annoyed when he's pundit. He's a pundit, and I have to watch him. Oh, sorry. He uh, he says Hazard is not a midfield player. He's a forward player. You've got to put him in the forward line. I would leave Hazard and Modric. I I think they were better players there this last season. And I think the thing is that like so Danny Mills and all of the other people who are complaining are paid to watch the Premier League and are English and are biased towards the young English guy. And what is the like? what is the value of even compiling these different 11s where you take players from different league who play for against different quality of opposition, have completely different roles within their teams and say, this is the best one. Like what is the point in that? And then what is the point in getting upset when a player does or does not get included in those things? I I I agree completely. I mean, it's basically just goes along national lines, and it's probably telling. Like, actually, I haven't seen it. Let me look at it. It's FIFA Team of the Year. If I Google that, will I find it? FIFA Team of the Year. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that Talksport put together their alternative Team of the Year. This is what they believe it should have been. So, in goal, Allison. Uh, in defence, they had Robertson, Van Dijk, Delight, yeah, yeah, from, yeah. he's the Ajax guy, right? And then Alexander Armstrong. <laughs> uh, Alexander, Alexander Armstrong. Super, from super alternative. Uh, right back there. <laughs> uh, Alexander Armstrong's at right back. And then De Jong in midfield. Then they've got De Bruyne and then Bernardo Silva. I think this was before he was racist. <laughs> Um, in the midfield, and then Hazard, Ronaldo, Messi up front, and I'm like, fine, that looks okay. If you're asking me if that's the best eleven players in the world, I'm going to say probably not. If you're asking me if three of the best four defenders in the world all play for Liverpool at the same time, I'm going to say probably. You know not, what that actually. team is? That is the team that you would put down on paper if you'd heard of Lionel Messi. You'd watch the Premier League and you'd watch the knockout stages of the Champions League. That is the team you'd put yeah, together, exactly, right? Yeah. And there's a lot more football than that in the world. Bernardo Silva doesn't even start the majority of Man City's games. How is he possibly the best midfielder in it's the world? Kind of crazy, right? Yeah. Let me have a look at this team. I can't find it. Why can't I find it? Here, here we go. Oh my God. Just it's like written in a big list. Just show them all on the pitch. Oh, there it is. Right. So the actual. So I'll, I'll read it out. <laughs> I'll read it out then. So the front, the forward line yeah, is Cristiano Ronaldo, Lionel Messi, and then uh, Kylian Mbappe. And sounds fine to me. Sounds Midfield: fine. De Bruyne, Kante, Modric. Um, okay. which I mean. I mean, did you watch the World Cup? Modric. 
I just don't think I would ever argue with Modric being in there. Yeah. I just don't think I would ever do it. I would never. Yeah, Modric was like the. Well, he was the player yeah, of the tournament was. for the yeah. World Cup. I mean, you could he, argue so. that there was a, there was an ultimate team last year as well. But anyway, and then there's Marcelo, Ramos, Van Dijk, and Varane, which is crazy because Varane doesn't play right back. So I don't know why their back line is three centre backs and one left back, and then De Gea in goals. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know. I watch football quite a lot. I don't know who the best players in the world are because I don't watch all of the players in close detail all of the time. Do I think Marcelo is probably the best left back? Yeah, probably. <laughs> you know he what? was last time I saw him. You know what I just read out? I watched. I read out the. I read out the FIFA what? nineteen computer game team of the year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was the- again it sounded like it might <laughs> yeah, have made totally sense to possible. me though <laughs> that was um, computer gamers voting on their best players <laughs> in the game of FIFA 2018 it's UEFA team of the year not FIFA team of the year oh man no it's it's fifth pro oh well how many well, are there I'm looking at it? now I'm looking at the UEFA team of the year Oh, do you want to see who's different? It's got it's got Ter Stegen. Don't care to be honest. And it's identical. Other than that, oh no, it's got right. Hazard instead of De Bruyne. Okay, yeah, De Bruyne was injured all of last year, wasn't he? De Bruyne played like yeah isn't four that, games or something. That'd be why he's not in it. But he would be in the computer. He's in the computer game. That would it? be why he's not in it. And the other, so the other trope of the week is that every single time I've seen any of these, like Ballon d'Or or any of this shit, there's a bunch of stories about how Cristiano Ronaldo and Lionel Messi don't <laughs> vote for each other. Oh, no way. That sounds so surprising. So I don't, you've not stood in any student elections or anything, have you? No. I uh, have been in a few... And there are always, um, is it a single transferable vote? Is the system where you rank your candidates and there's rounds. So it's like you knock out each time so the bottom candidate gets knocked out and then whoever voted for candidate seven, now that they're out, it goes to their next preference. That single transferable vote, isn't it? But so I'm sure that that's how most of these work. Right. Is that you vote for, you know, number one, number two, number three. And if number three gets knocked out, then it's your number one. And if it's number, and I have never ever voted for the person who was my direct competitor in any of those, just in case I accidentally voted for them to beat me. <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense, doesn't it? If it comes down to one vote and it turns out that Ronaldo voted for Messi and Messi didn't vote for Ronaldo, then Ronaldo's going to look and feel like a dick. <laughs> so of course, of course he's not going to vote for Messi. It's not a story. It's not. I mean... Do you think that by him not voting on that thing, he's like, I'm not voting for Messi because he's shit at football? Yeah, I mean, it's almost as though 
they're not voting in an entirely objective way that reveals the deep truths of the universe about who is objectively the best footballer. It's almost like this whole team of the year thing is complete bollocks anyway. I mean, there's four players in the team. I've got the real team now. I'm looking at the right thing. I finally found it. There's four players of the team from Real Madrid. Okay. I mean, I don't think Real Madrid won anything last season. Did they? No, Real Madrid was shit last year. Right. So, I mean, I just, I don't look at that and then feel aggrieved that there's four Real Madrid players. I don't look at it and see there's two. There's Alisson and Van Dijk, two from Liverpool. I mean, oh, maybe there should be four. Maybe there should be four. I mean, I just, who cares enough? Do you think part of the problem is that they yeah. they have to make copy, right? They have to do something every day of the week because they're football players. 100%. So this is just something easy. It's like, I don't know. It's just sometimes at work, if I want something easy to do, I'll just read emails that I know contain information that's useless to me. And I'll just read them because that's something easy to do. And I feel like this is like this is what football pundits are doing. They're just making like they're just doing something piss easy that is actually useless. Yeah. No, I agree hundred percent. So that's my trope of the week is just team of the weeks in general, but the idea of there being obvious snubs. <laughs> I think no matter which way you look at it, if you like a player and you think they're really good, they've probably been snubbed for you. Yeah. And the player who they've been snubbed for is probably also quite good at football. Let's just move on. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, have you got any predictions ready? I'll make a prediction just off the top of my head. Yeah. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer will not be Man United manager at the end of the season. At the end of the season? Yeah. I think he'll get fired. It's not it's not the boldest prediction I've ever heard. All right, before Christmas. I would I thought that you were gonna say before the next podcast. That's crazy. Is that too That's bold? Too bold. Oh, I think it's in the, the realms of possibility. Man United look absolutely they terrible. Look terrible, don't they? And uh, and, and I mm-hmm. think that if they're mid table near Christmas, it's bye bye. I don't think they'll do it before before then. I think they'll do it before all of the games in December so that they hope that they get like a new manager bump. I did see um, someone tweeting. I follow this guy who owns a sports analytics company on Twitter and he was tweeting about all of the managers that are available that could replace Unai Emery when they were uh, when they were 1-0 down with 10 men to go at the weekend against uh, against oh fuck I've already forgotten who it was against. Who was it against? Uh, the weekend, yeah. Aston, Villa. Aston Villa. God, that's not bode well for me in old age, does it? Um, <laughs> it doesn't. But I watched that match. You've already got the car, to be fair. I've got the car. Um, and uh, in in like forty five minutes later, he had a completely obsolete tweet. So I don't want to do that for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer too quickly. Okay. Yeah. 
but you're just going to leave it sitting there. Ali is doomed. Yeah. He doesn't seem. He doesn't okay. seem to have like much about him, does he? Ali going to Solskjaer. No, he seems like a nice guy, but I mean, gift of the gap. Probably needs to just go back and manage sort of small Norwegian team. Probably. All right. What's yours? Okay. Uh, my prediction is that the Rugby World Cup will continue to go on and I will continue to not give a shit. <laughs> I can't be arsed with the times of the games, so I've not watched any of it yet. Yeah. It's just been so flat. I mean, I live in Wales and it's just, I really don't think, I think it must be the times that the games are taking place. Yeah, that's what it is. They all happen at night time. The height. There's absolutely no hype here. There's no one talking about the games. There's nothing. And I like didn't. I watched. I was scrolling through the TV, and the Scotland game was on. And I turned it on, and then I was like, mm, "I'm going to watch Bake Up on Bake Off on Catch Up." For some reason, it's just not grasped me. As, and it might just be because Scotland is shit, mm. but it's not. That doesn't usually deter me. <laughs> But it's not grabs me at all. I've just been like, I sort of don't care about this sport anymore. It might just be that I've given up on rugby. If Scotland being shit was a disqualifier for watching Scottish sport, we would never have watched any Scottish sport. You know? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. That. You know what's more fun than uh, rugby union? Many things. Uh, but sevens, rugby sevens, that's just more fun to watch. Yeah, it's, it's just more fun to watch. Yeah, it's one of the things that's always confused me is that if you just look at it objectively, rugby league is a much more exciting sport than rugby union. Like, it's faster, the pace of the game goes quicker, the athletes are more explosive, they turn over play faster, so they try and score more, and... I do think rugby union is a better sport, but I've just it just isn't doing it for me at all. And mm. this World Cup has sort of failed to exist, so it doesn't even seem to be getting a huge amount of coverage in the in the press. So mm. for whatever reason, rugby World Cup in in Japan just will continue to not really care. All right, that's a, I that's didn't realize that you could make and, predictions about yourself. Because that seems like an easy prediction game, an easy prediction racket. I do feel confident about it, to be fair. <laughs> oh, right, this has been a very long show. Yeah. Hopefully I managed to cut it down a Don't little worry. bit. Like you say, it's a podcast. Just leave it. You know Joe Rogan? It's like yeah, three just... and a half hours and just and he just genuinely talks shit. Genuinely talks shit. Don't ever listen to the Joe Rogan podcast. It's not good. No, it's easy. Well, I mean, what you just did there was say this other guy does this podcast where he does it, and then it also recommended I not listen to that. <laughs> yeah, that's well, true. maybe try and make the next one a little bit shorter, but um, you know, savor it, make it run over a period of time. Uh, you know, go make yourself a cup of tea, come back a couple hours later, come back the next day, listen to the first bit on your commute into work listen to it again a little bit on your lunch and then finish it off on your commute home yeah and uh, next episode we're going to talk about the supreme court ruling and whether prorogue in parliament was illegal 
and Pakistani grooming gangs and all the good stuff because that appears to be the way we're going. Yeah, we'll go for the most complex <laughs> topics we can find. Not even the most complex, are... just the, the, emo- the ones that make people angry. Most emotionally charged. Most emotionally charged. That'd be a good one, a good segment. What's the most emotionally charged moment in sport ever? Oh, good. Okay. Well, come back for episode 13 to find out. Um, do let us know if you listen to the podcast. It always makes me feel very happy, um, particularly if you quote something which took place in the podcast. Um, that makes my heart really swell. Um, tell a friend. Maybe don't tell them to listen to this one because this one's a bit long. <laughs> Um, um, I don't think it was that funny. It's not that funny. Tell them to listen to the first 50 minutes of this one and then, you know, other episodes. (laughs) Um, But do do reach out, download, subscribe on all respectable and some non-respectable podcast providers. Um, And we will see you next time. Do you have anything to add, Andrew? No. (laughs) (laughs) I read the news today, oh boy, about a lucky man who made the grade. And though the news was rather sad, well, I just had to laugh. I saw the photograph He blew his mind out in a car He didn't notice that the lights had changed A crowd of people stood and stared They'd seen his face before Nobody was really sure if he was wrong.